This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. I'm now really, really delighted to welcome onto the program two people who I've been desperate to chat with. Dr. Ted Gott, he's the Senior Curator of International Art at the National Gallery of Victoria, alongside his colleague, Dr. Miranda Wallace, Senior Curator of International Exhibition Projects at the National Gallery of Victoria. And we are going to be discussing right now the exhibition that is currently showing at the National Gallery. Uh, obviously, here in Victoria, there are different restriction settings. So those in Melbourne, um, you know, can't do much. And obviously, the NGV is up in Melbourne. So it means that it's currently closed to the public. But there is going to be a really great chance for you to take a live tour with Miranda and Ted uh, on Sunday, the 3rd of October, through their Facebook page, which is going to be live streaming. It's going to be a one-hour tour. It will take you on 20 different stops and will culminate in a final oval room, which features uh, 16 of Claude Monet's masterpieces. And uh, if you're not so familiar with French Impressionism or Impressionism in general, uh, although France is really the the place of Impressionism, um, or the birthplace, I should say. This exhibition features a range of artists. 79 works have never been exhibited before um, in Australia, and these works come from artists such as Claude Monet, Pierre-Auguste Renoir, Edgar Degas, Camille Pissarro, and Mary Cassatt, and many more. So I welcome Miranda and Ted now. Hi there, Ted. Good morning, Good morning, and hi there, Miranda. Hi, Amy. It's great to be with you. It's really wonderful to to chat with you. I know that I desperately wanted to have actually seen it in person, um, which Mm. is why we delayed this chat, but unfortunately it doesn't seem like the restrictions are going to be nice enough to let me. But that's okay because there's really great opportunities for people to engage with this exhibition online, which is wonderful, and the NGV is doing a great job of that. Um, And I've also utilise some excellent photographs of the exhibition so I can visualise when we're talking about these great works. But they are something that is, I know anyone who would see a, a French Impressionist work, it's something that you you stand in front of and are quite taken by from its, you know, luminosity, the vibrancy of its colours, the impasto paint, the, you know, wonderful brush strokes and you know, these things are very visible to the naked eye when you're standing, excuse me, in front of these paintings. So it is certainly something that, uh, you know, is a real luxury, I guess, for us to have access to these paintings in such a a large scale. So maybe with uh, you, Miranda, given your role as a curator of these international exhibitions, um, perhaps we could just touch on that first in terms of how this exhibition has made its way to Melbourne. Yes, sure. Um, yes, it is. Um, it's you know, in, in in different times, in our you know, quote unquote, normal times, this is would have been probably one of our most, I would say, most visited exhibitions um, because of, as you say, that amazing um, experience that impressionist paintings give you in the flesh. Um, and you know, we hope to be able to bring some of that uh, to the viewers online. Um, the exhibition comes from the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, which is. Uh, one of those great North American museums that was really, um, you know, established and and quickly came to be one of the major kind of 
places for, for holding, in this case, 19th century French painting. It's also got perhaps North America's best collection of Japanese art, just as a, an extra um, feather in its cap. It's a really interesting story. I mean, for people who haven't been to Boston, Boston is a very you know, it's it's it, there's a kind of um, the legend of the Boston Boston Brahmins, this sort of um, very wealthy uh, figures who um, populated Boston in the 19th century. Some of the you know former presidents, great artists, great writers, great medicos who kind of led the cultural um, development of North America. A lot of those people travelled to France even before there were. Um, you know, even when there were like sailing ships, like before, like in the early 1830s and 40s, which is shows a great determination to visit what they thought of as the old country. And they visited France in order to study, They, especially those who were in um, medicine. It's, it was a great connection, but also art and to visit the, you know, art Paris was very much considered the centre of art in Europe in that period. Um, and they brought paintings back with them. They bought work that was contemporary and then they, uh, when they, you know, were older, they donated it to their museum. So Boston's Museum of Fine Arts was founded in 1870. So it's it's a bit younger than the NGV, but only by a few years. And uh, it very quickly built up this great collection. So we're really lucky to, that they lent to us over 100 works from this collection, which really include the most iconic pieces in their Impressionist collection. They were, I mean, I think it's three or four years ago, they were uh, planning to undertake a big renovation project of those galleries. So, you know, at director level, there are often discussions between museums about what's possibly not going to be on display and may be available for a tour. And so we uh, were very fortunate that we were able to arrange this exclusive exhibition for Melbourne. Of course, COVID came along in the middle of that <laughs> and, um you know, that put a few spanners in the works. I think that their renovation project was postponed, but they very much committed to still lend us the works. So all in all, you know, it's had quite a journey to get here. And I mean, the journey, literally the journey of paintings traveling the world is always fraught with, um, you know, logistical challenges at the best of times. Mm. And uh, during COVID, of course, that added hugely to it. Thankfully, Ted and I are slightly on the fringes of that <laughs> logistical <laughs> nightmare, but uh, our colleagues who work in the registration department had to wrangle, you know, constantly changing freight routes and, um, yeah, the whole issue of, like, couriers who come and basically, you know, o oversee the transport of paintings uh, and, you know, they had to quarantine. Um, so, yeah, it was it was a much more complex process. Um, yes. But, you know, we eventually had it on and it was open for a month, I'm pleased to say. I think we did have 30 days of visitation at least. At least we had that. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I'm so glad that people have had an opportunity. Some people have to see it. Mm. And I know um, I, I was watching one of the videos um, from the National Gallery with the Associate Director of Conservation, Michael Varco-Cox, who was mentioning that some of the paintings in this show had actually been recently conserved and so are being shown for the first time in their new state, um, mm. which I found really interesting too, given that um, this kind of luminosity and vibrancy of a lot of these paintings uh, would no doubt be improved, hopefully, by conservation and uh, would you know, fix up some of the, the kind of deteriorations of, of time because these paintings are, as we will discover, you know, pretty old. 
Mm, yes, that's right. And I think, I mean, Ted can probably speak to this as well, but I think there are some examples in the exhibition, and I'm thinking, Ted, of the um, Narcisse Vergi de la Peña paintings. I think we learnt that yeah. they had recently been conserved, and they're really quite dark paintings. They don't have that luminosity because they're a bit they predate the Impressionists. Um, they're a sort of inner section of the exhibition that's looking at the precursors of the Impressionists. Mm. And they're fascinating paintings because he used bitumen um, in his, you know, as part of his materials to sort of get this sort of very heavy, dark, viscous kind of quality to the paint um, at the time, and that's a very unstable um, medium. So they were conserved, and they do have an incredible vibrancy in the in terms of just the, the range of light and dark. There was a lot of varnish removed, I think, from many of the, those earliest works, yeah. um, which helps to bring up the, the vibrancy of them. Yes, it's amazing to see some before and after pictures when you take varnish off a painting. Um, mm. Now, I would love to, uh, first of all, with you, Ted, ask about the precursors to French Impressionism, uh, particularly thinking about great people or artists um, who were influenced by them. So obviously uh, art is not done in a vacuum. There's this wonderful melting pot of ideas and also reactions against uh, different movements or styles and, and approaches. So um, I wanted to ask about uh, particularly thinking about Camille Pissarro and uh, who he was influenced by and the other kind of um, precursors to French Impressionism that um, are so so vital to this movement um, coming about? Sure. Well, look, all of the Impressionists, for, um, I, yeah, not for the most part, I'd say all of them were influenced by the preceding generation of artists who are known today as the Barbizon School. Um, and that's because... These artists went out in the 1830s, 40s, and 50s. And in the 1850s, the Impressionists are teenagers, so that sets the time frame. These earlier artists were the first generation that left their studios in Paris and went out and painted directly before nature. They were aided by this, particularly by the invention in the 1840s of the new technology of putting um, oil paints into little metal tubes. So they were able to pack up a box of those jump on the train and go out into the countryside. And for the most part, they chose to paint in the Fontainebleau Forest, which was just over an hour's journey from Paris by train. And as Miranda mentioned, the works by Narcisse Vigilias de la Peña, and there are some beautiful ones in the opening room of the show, are very dark. And so are the works by his colleague Theodore Rousseau. And that's because when you go to Fontainebleau Forest, it is very dark. There's a very thick overhead uh, tree canopy and then you come to clearings where there's brilliant shafts of sunlight that come down. So that's partly why their paintings are dark, but also they haven't yet got the new colours that would be invented later on um, that would bring a, a, a sparkling new freshness to the uh, next generation of Impressionist painters. But when the Impressionists were coming of age in the late 1850s, they started to see, they started to visit the, the salons in Paris and they started to see this first generation of artists who painted out of doors, and they were inspired by them. And they were also inspired by the fact that these men, because they were all men at this stage, had consistently had their works rejected from the official salon because the salon uh, at this time was the only show in town. It was the annual art exhibition held once a year in summer. 
each year there were over 3,000 paintings presented. Uh, so imagine our exhibition building in Melbourne on steroids and you've got some idea mm. <laughs> of what the public were faced with. But in these salons, the top of the hierarchy of what you were meant to show were biblical scenes, mythological scenes, stories from Greek and Roman history, uh, battles, uh, stories from contemporary history, the Napoleonic Wars, portraits of dignitaries like the Emperor Napoleon III. Underneath all of that came the humble landscape, and down the very bottom, the lowest category of all was the still life. And in fact, so uh, out of favour with the judges who decided what would be shown each year was the still life, that in 1863, every single still life was rejected from the salon. So the Impressionist decision to adopt, A, the landscape, B, the still life, uh, is radical. And Camille Pissarro is one of the uh, prime movers in that. He's the oldest of the French Impressionists. He was born in 1830 in what was then the Danish West Indies. It's now um, the U.S. Virgin Islands. Um, so he's a little bit of an outsider, as in uh, the sense that he's a foreigner, but he's also a kind of a father or an uncle figure because he's, you know, he's 10 to 15 years older than all of his colleagues. So when they gather together, in um, 1874 to hold their first exhibition, which they do because, like the earlier generation of um, uh, painters working in the Fontainebleau Forest, they had also had their first works rejected from this salon system. So they were over it. So that's why they get together in 1874 and decide to put on their own art show. Uh, and that's revolutionary in itself. They, they turn their back on the entire system. Camille Pissarro is a leader there. He's an advisor and a mentor to all of them. And there are great stories in the show about his mentoring of uh, colleagues like um, Paul Cezanne, the young Paul Gauguin, and then most famously Vincent van Gogh, um, none of whom would, would be the artist they subsequently became without the friendship, the mentoring, and the teaching of Camille Pissarro. Oh, well, I'm glad to hear that. I, I've loved reading his letters um, that were published to his son, Lucien, which I think draw out his sense of humour and just how direct yeah. he is about his views. He's uh, really refreshing to read. Um, and, it, I mean, even in 1891, in one of his letters, um, I was taken by, you know, what he was saying about the public's response to their art, which was, quote, it will take 20 years to open people's eyes, even of those who specialise in art. So it's clear that what they were doing, although it's highly popular and very well received these days and one of the most popular uh, styles that people would get to go and see, um, at the time the response was not uh, what they would have uh, hoped for, I guess, in terms of the, the level of innovation they were achieving, but also not that surprising that there was that much of a pushback given that focus of on history painting, which you were referencing there, and that, you know, austere subject matter that has some greater and higher meaning and purpose. So um, I wondered when you were thinking about uh, these other artists as well, like um, Cezanne, I was I did remember a quote um, from Cezanne, which I thought might be useful for us to spring from. He said, I have discovered that the sunlight cannot be reproduced, but it must be represented by something else, by colour. 
um, which I think obviously is quite relevant to all of the Impressionists. So perhaps for those who aren't familiar with the style itself and what the artist was seeking to achieve, um, could you share with us some of these kind of foundational elements of what makes French Impressionism so uh, unique and, and what makes it what it is? Mm. Well, shall I start, Ted, and then yeah. I'll pass to you. Yeah. I'll just mention, yeah. you know, we we um, we worked with the curator in Boston, Katie Hansen, on the exhibition, and she, of course, knows these paintings back to front. Um, and what she wanted to do, and I think it, it's remind people really of what is the kind of classic sort of hallmarks of Impressionism, and she starts the exhibition by, with these two great paintings, one by Monet and another by Renoir, from the mid-1870s, and the kind of checklist, if you like, of things that make a great Impressionist painting are things like the luminous palette, so using light colours, kind of banishing black paint and creating shadow but using purple and green and blue. So it's a kind of quite a kaleidoscopic colour scheme but very differently treated by different artists. So you can't say that there's a single style. I mean, Monet is perhaps the most characteristic impressionist. He uses little sort of dabs, short dashes and dabs of colour with his brush uh, to, to build up a scene. And it's often a broad landscape, a, a picture that incorporates elements of fields and meadows, trees, uh, a kind of horizon line. He is often someone who doesn't foreground the figure, although figures do appear in his paintings, but really he gives primacy to the natural scene. And he does suggest the kind of movement of light on the surface of the grasses and on the flowers, this sort of idea of light. And this is your quote from Cezanne is fascinating because I think it is something that they were grappling with, something that you know, trying to represent the experience of nature and the impression, how sunlight for us, how we perceive it with our eyes and how you then represent that is a very complex thing. And they all do it differently. Um, and just the other thing, you know, the vibrancy of colours, Ted mentioned that, um, you know, there were new paints. One of the new kind of uh, discoveries in the early 19th century had been some new pigments. Previously, pigments had often had to be you know, they were made of, you know, different beetle wings or plants uh, that came, that had to be ground and mixed up to create the colour. And often they would oxidise and wouldn't last very well on canvas. They were much more temperamental. There were more um, synthetic kind of pigments created by industrial chemists and things like chrome yellow, a really bright yellow, is often, uh, was, was certainly used widely by the Impressionists. And that those sort of colour scheme, uh, emerald green, chrome yellow, certain blues are quite characteristic in their paintings. Um, so I think that those are two of the things that I would say uh, characterise Impressionism. Um, I'll see what Ted has to think as well. Mm, thanks, Miranda. Yeah, sure. I mean, what, what's really radical about them was just their very simplicity. The fact that they turned their back on everything they were expected to do in this salon system. And the, at the salon, you were meant to show what we call academic art. It comes from the Académie des Beaux-Arts, the Academy of Fine Arts, and students there were trained to paint pretty much in a cookie-cutter pattern. And if you think of a painting like Jules Lefebvre's Chloe in Young and Jackson Hotel, that's a classic salon painting that won the gold medal at the Salon of 1875, just one year after the Impressionist's first exhibition. And in that, you cannot see a single brushstroke. The surface is just uh, absolutely impeccable. Uh, and the the, what a contrast with Impressionist painting where all we see are brushstrokes um, and thick use of paint with the palette knife. And 
Um, so that was radical. Just a, just a simple decision to show simple scenes of everyday French life, to exhibit portraits of uh, ordinary, non-famous people, and to paint fresh new landscapes out of doors directly before nature. This was a revolution at the time. And both the techniques of um, uh, painting and the, the compositions completely befuddled the critics. They couldn't understand why these artists looked different one from the other because they were trained to expect all paintings to look the same. And look, let's look at some of the things that they said. In the first exhibition, 1874, one critic wrote that this show is quite simply the negation of the most elemental rules of drawing and painting. The scribblings of a child have a naivete and sincerity that make you smile. The debaucheries of this school are nauseating and revolting. Uh, another critic wrote in 1880 that um, the pure uncompromising impressionist is a man afflicted with a disease of the retina. Um, and that was picked up by another critic who attacked the way that the impressionist he wrote, quote, they apply the most disparate colours, preferring to paint lilac noses, red eyes, yellow cheeks, scarlet eyelashes, blue meadows. Uh, so they were considered to be freaks um, and lunatics, you know. <clears throat> one critic actually wrote that um, among the Impressionist group, there are five or six lunatics, one of whom is a woman. He <laughs> was referring to the great artist Bertha Morisot. Uh, who is in the exhibition and is one of two painters who showed regularly with the Impressionist, Berta Morisot and her American counterpart, Mary Cassatt. Yes, and I believe, was so, it Berta who was um, exhibiting in the first exhibition alongside her male colleagues? That's right. Berta exhibits in all of the eight group exhibitions that they held in Paris between 1874 and 1886, the only one she missed, 1879, because she'd just given birth to her daughter, Julie. But otherwise, she's a leading figure. She's an organiser. Uh, she's not just an exhibitor, but she's actively involved in preparing for them. And what's also revolutionary about the Impressionist movement is that at this time, women could show in various art exhibitions, but they were not allowed to join any art club. It was a men's world. The Impressionists let them join as members and equals revolutionary yeah. as well in the 1870s. So well done then. Absolutely, yeah. And I know that we um, we mentioned that there are a number of paintings in this exhibition that are very recognisable to people, uh, even if they're not particularly interested in art in general, because a lot of these works are quite iconic. And um, some of them I'm thinking of in particular is uh, Claude Monet with his grain stack snow effect. Um, he obviously did a number of series of haystacks and grain stacks to look at the light um, in different seasons, in different weathers, and how they um, cast shadows on the ground. Uh, so that's probably a really interesting study of what you've just been discussing around how does one depict light and how, um, you know, you can use these colours of purple to cast a shadow on a, a snowy field. Um, and then there's also another really great uh, striking painting quite large um, when you see the exhibition photographs by Renoir, which is of a couple dancing as well, and that's another quite iconic um, painting. So I wanted to ask about some of these individual artists and how they might differ in their approach to um, painting in the Impressionist style, because when you look at something like a Renoir, it does have this kind of... Um, 
blurry or fuzziness that kind of gives it this movement and this um, softness, a soft quality to it. Whereas if you compare it to a, a Pissero, you'll see that it's quite, you know, quite different. So I, I just wanted to draw mm. out that a little bit to give people an idea of the differences and why they might have been so different. Well, Miranda, yeah. I'm, I'm thinking of um, the critic Emil Zola's famous statement that um, um, <clears throat> modern painting um, uh, depicts a slice of nature seen through an individual temperament. Um, mm. And the revolutionary is that all of these artists painted with their own painterly style and individual uh, artistic handwriting, as it were. So we know today uh, from their endless reproduction you can hold up on a, a public transport or you can stop traffic at a red light and hold up and anyone can say, that's a Renoir, that's a Monet, that's a Van Gogh. Mm. You know, they've become iconic symbols of individual uh, freedom through their uh, quite unique manners of approaching subject matter. Mm, that's right. And Renoir is particularly, I find, quite fascinating. He's someone who has a quite a different start um, from many of the other Impressionists. Quite a few of the Impressionists come from fairly uh, well-to-do backgrounds where they've been, you know, afforded, you know, private art lessons or they go to the Ecole de Beaux-Arts and, and also have private art lessons um, when they're in their sort of late teens. Renoir has quite a different start. He comes from a, a sort of artisanal family in Limoges. Uh, his father is a tailor and his mother is a seamstress. So they don't have a lot of money. And at 13, um, the, the family moves to Paris when I think he's 12. And at 13, he becomes an apprentice in a porcelain factory. So he's painting on porcelain, um, often sort of, you know, the, the little cartouche that appears on a lamp or on a, um, a, a you know, cups and saucers. And he'll be pa painting scenes that were popular in that medium, which were often paintings from the early 1800s, um, or late 1700s, in fact, the early sort of sort of French um, sort of Rococo uh, painting, so very different from what was in contemporary art at the time. But he, Renoir, you know, soon he visits the Louvre on Sundays. I think it's free on Sundays. And he goes and studies the paintings and he wants to um, improve his art from a very young age. And so he he's a kind of figure that is constantly evolving. And in the exhibition, we see paintings from quite a narrow period, actually, from about 1880 to, well, we have the, of course, we have his early 1870s painting at the beginning of the exhibition from his Impressionist, very early Impressionist period. And then we see him in the 1880s transforming quite a bit in terms of his brush strokes. And you see him experimenting literally with the brush and how he applies it. And you end up getting the much more characteristic, I think, feathery brush stroke coming through in that that final painting that you refer to, which is the fig, the two dancing figures, the dancers at Bougival, um, which is one of a series of greater than life size paintings that Renoir made of dancers um, who are in a, enjoying a, a leisure time in an outdoor beer hall. I think there's one that's called a country dance, which is in the Musée d'Orsay in Paris. There's also a city dance. And this one is um, the Boston work. Um, it looks like we all recognise it. I have to say, it seems like a very familiar painting. And I was quite surprised that it didn't come, he's never been to Australia before because a lot of people will think that they have seen it before, but it is quite um, fantastic to have it here. But by that, what the paintings that we've got in the show, um, well, in the exhibition demonstrate is this constant experimentation with brushstroke. So we see him travelling to Italy, studying the works of the old masters, 
And for many of the younger Impressionists, you know, they, we often hear that they wanted to reject tradition, reject art history and create something contemporary and new. But that's always, uh, you know, it's always a com more complex story than that. There were certainly some of these artists who still wanted to look at the examples of the great painters of the past. And for Renoir, that was visiting Venice and Rome and Florence and seeing the works of Michelangelo and uh, Titian, Tintoretto, and sort of applying some of what he learnt to his own work. And so he really improved his figure drawing and his figure studies. So we go from being primarily landscapes through to looking at some of his figure studies and I think his, his late figure paintings, his great bathers and his pictures of girls in the fields and on the seashore and playing the piano, they're the ones that people I think recognise most readily, that late work by Renoir. So the exhibition gives mm -hmm. us a chance to see how he got there. Yeah, it's, it's really wonderful that we do have access to those paintings. And that reminds me of um, a quote from him about um, the kind of positioning of colours on the canvas, which is really quite obvious in that dancer um, painting. Uh, he said, mm -hmm. quote, I began to paint with Naples yellow, which is a rather dull colour. It gave me all the brilliance I sought, but it's always the same story. It depends what I put around it. And, you know, I mean, if you look at the painting, if, if anyone can see it, and I'll um, post up a link to some of these images later, I mean, it is about, you know, what the colours are that are beside it and around it and how they're playing off against each other, isn't it? It is. And just an interesting note about that painting, when we had the head of conservation from the, from the Museum of Fine Arts out installing the exhibition with us, she talked about that painting and, I mean, mostly the colours are, you know, it's a very um, vibrant painting, especially the blues come across very beautifully in the in the painting. But she did say that the dress of the woman has faded over time and that it would have been a more bright, as they called it, shrimp pink, <laughs> which is quite interesting because I think at the time, you know, she there were kind of criticisms of the fact that she looked like, um, she, her dress looked like a lobster tail and I think that was a reference <laughs> to colour. So... I think it was, you know, quite vibrant and a bit shocking to people. Yeah, so she has a very bright orange hat too. It's like this kind mm. of burnt orangey red coloured hat, so I'm not surprised That's that they right. and threw red the lobster hair. comparison. It's, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Oh, that's really great. Um, and also when we're talking about subjects, because, uh, Ted, you were mentioning landscape is obviously a, a major development here in terms of the natural landscape, but there are also paintings that uh, from the Impressionists that involve subjects in natural landscapes and also um, focus on subjects more themselves, like in the figures dancing that we're talking about with Renoir. And a lot of it is focused on this um, leisure time and this enjoyment of the countryside um, and if you compare it to the previous school and you think of someone like Millet who was uh, you know painting working class people in fields um, you know getting potatoes out of the ground like this is a, a very yeah. different approach isn't it in terms of the subject matter they're choosing. Absolutely and I think that uh, this new emphasis upon landscape and upon ordinary people engaging in the local landscape reflects the arrival of the new technology of railway travel because for the first time, you know, it's affordable uh, and quick to leave um, the noise and dirt of Paris. Remember, Paris is under intense uh, reconstruction at this time. Uh, and to get out into the countryside, it's only 30 minutes away or, you know, if you want to be more adventurous, it's two hours to get to the, um, uh, the Channel coastline on the Normandy coast. 
Uh, and it's kind of strange to think that, you know, even just going to the seaside um, was something relatively new that started in the 1860s. In the 1830s, 40s and 50s, people did not go to the beach. Only the people who lived, the fishermen, were the only people who enjoyed the water. Mm. So it's kind of strange to look back and think that it's radical even to paint people on the beach um, at this period. And it's because of the new freedoms that the railway has brought that changes uh, everything in people's daily lives and, and opens up the wonder of the countryside to them for the first time and for artists as well. They're no longer confined to a little area. You know, you mentioned Mia. He spent most of his life living uh, near the Fontainebleau Forest and just painting the little villages that um, um, out a very poor existence there um, in the little village of Barbizon. Um, so he did not take advantage of the new technologies um, in the way that the next generation would. Um. It's also great that in this show, I think, that you can see how artists develop um, and the way they paint changes. Um, I'm thinking of Pissarro. You know, the uh, earliest work in the show by him is, is a wonderful painting called Sunlight on the Road Pontoise, painted in 1874, uh, the year of the first independent um, Impressionist exhibition. And there it looks like it's almost like uh, he's using the palette knife, and, uh, knife a lot. And it, I like to think it, he's like buttering a piece of toast with great slabs of butter. And there's this great enjoyment of just using the uh, viscous oil paint in this expressive manner. But then when you see works that he does in the 1880s, they're quite different. And it's not surprising that critics have compared them to knitting. Um, you suddenly get, instead of these great daubs of uh, pigment, you get an intense network of, of little dabs of colour that almost seem to be uh, painted the way you would knit a jumper. Um, and then he, although he's the oldest of the Impressionists, he's the most radical because in the mid-1880s he changes his style altogether. He meets the young Georges Seurat and his friend Paul Signac, and they've grown up looking at the Impressionists and have decided really that they're not interested in them. Um, and they've been looking at the colour theory developed by the chemist Michel Eugène Chabrol when he was director of the Gobelin Tapestry Workshop. And they're intrigued by the fact that what can you do if you don't mix colours like the Impressionists, if you simply apply dabs of individual complementary colours side by side and then stand back and see what happens? Well, what happens is that your retina creates a third colour from the combination of uh, two on their canvases. And this is called neo-impressionism. It's also known as divisionism because of divided colours. That's also known as pointyism, which crudely translates as dotty painting in English because they're individual dots. When Pissarro decided to paint like this, he created a real ruckus. Uh, some of his impressionist colleagues cut off their friendship with him, like Paul Gauguin. That was the end of mm. his friendship with him. They couldn't follow him down this new path. So it's fascinating to see even within a single artist, these variations in style as he grows, matures, experiments, sometimes succeeds, sometimes doesn't succeed as well. Yes. Well, neo-impressionism is quite controversial. Even still, some people, you know, really like it and other people really don't. Um, but one of the – it does remind me the fact that the National Gallery owns a really wonderful Pissarro painting um, called Boulevard, Boulevard Montmartre uh, in the morning, cloudy weather, and it's this yeah. absolutely phenomenal painting um, that I've 
thankfully seen in person. And it's just amazing when you get up to it to see, you know, these really like bright greens that are just kind of tiny specks that just draw your eye into the middle of the painting. And there's all these really amazing, um, as you say, like technically brilliant and very innovative approaches that you probably don't realise if you're not going to analyse the painting. But when you look a little bit deeper into it, it just, it's kind of astounding what he was doing. Absolutely. Look, I think it's rather amusing that when we bought this painting, and it was bought by our director, Bernard Hall, in 1905, which made us the first public gallery in the world to buy an Impressionist painting, as opposed to being given one. It's one of the first purchases made with our new Felton bequest, the money donated to us by the great Alfred Felton in 1904. When it was first displayed in Melbourne in 1907, quite a few critics said it was, it was really weird. It's out of focus, they said, like a biograph film. And it's fascinating that they were comparing the flickering brushstrokes and what they thought was an out-of-focus picture to modern cinema. And we know that Pissarro saw the very first films made by the Lumiere brothers that were displayed in Paris in the mid-1890s. And so the impact upon cinema, uh, of cinema upon his art is absolutely clear. Um, so is the impact of Monet. Now, that painting, Boulevard Montmartre, uh, Cloudy Morning, <clears throat> was inspired by Monet's great exhibition in 1891 of the 15 haystacks, which you mentioned before. And in that show, <clears throat> Monet created what was a game changer in modern art. And he just showed the one thing, a single haystack or a grain stack, as the Americans say. Um, but he showed it um, in summer, winter, autumn and spring. He showed it at dawn, in hot noon sun, at twilight. He showed it... Um, in mist, in blinding rain, and as in the beautiful painting I learned from Boston, covered in a light dusting of snow on a crisp winter's morning. So he showed that the subject could be as much about mood, environment, and climate as it is about anything that's going on. So a simple haystack became the focus of a brand new development in modern art. Inspired by this, after he abandoned neo-impressionism, um, he flirts with it for five or six years, but then Pissarro comes back to pure Impressionist painting. In 1897, though, his eyesight, is, uh, he's got troubles. Um, his eyes dribble constantly in the air, so he can't paint out of doors anymore. So he decides to rent rooms in hotels, and in this case, he rented a room on the second floor, um, in a hotel overlooking the Boulevard Montmartre, and out of the windows of that room in February and March um, uh, 1897, he painted... 14 views, exactly the same, showing the same view down the street. But like Monet's haystacks, he shows it in changing seasons. He shows it in the rain, in the snow, at dusk, with all the lights twinkling in broad daylight. Um, and it's just a fantastic uh, uh, new way of painting, which, which we art historians call series paintings. Mm, I think I've got to say that my favourite is what you've just described, that the Haystack series and the Boulevard Montmartre um, series. And and even in those um, letters to his son, Lucy, and he does talk about his his failing health and uh, and his, his challenges and, you know, his daily life of working on several paintings at once and moving between them. Um, and obviously the challenges that oil paint provide in terms of, you know, timing of, of working on them and um, the paint drying or not drying and needing um, some of this wet-on-wet wet work as well. 
Absolutely. And look, we're really lucky that his son Lucien moved to London. And that's why we've got hundreds of letters that uh, describe his daily experiences. And you'll remember the great letter he writes when he sees Monet's Haystack show. And he just says, Lucien, something incredible has happened. You've just got to cross the channel and come to Paris as fast as you can to see this. <laughs> and then he's quite jealous yeah. as well. He says, the paintings, you know, they're 4,000 francs a piece and they've all sold, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a big deal, isn't it? Um, and yeah. Miranda, like in the exhibition, I know that um, there is this big room. I haven't yet seen it, but I've seen the photos of it uh, with the mm. 16 pieces by Monet. Um, and obviously mm. we've just been talking about how uh, jealous Pissarro was of Monet's success with that particular series. Um, what are some of the pieces that are featured in this Monet? room and, um, you know, how special is it and how unique is it to have these uh, works together and, and I guess what the considerations were for the room because it's quite a unique layout as well. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really an exhibition within an exhibition um, and when we uh, – so it's got 16 paintings, one of which has um, a couple of figures in it. Uh, there's an early painting of his wife Camille uh, in their garden at Argentoy, and it's from the early 1870s. Um, the rest of the paintings are all landscapes, and the idea was to group them by place, and they're places that Monet returned to many times in his life and spent a lot of time looking at and painting. So there's a group from the Normandy coast. Monet um, was born in Paris, but he grew up in Le Havre on that Normandy coast. And he knew that landscape very well and the very changeable conditions of the sea and the sky across the, the channel. He also made um, painting visits, you know, campaigns, he would call them in the late years uh, particularly, more, more so as he got older, down to the south of France. Um, and so there's a great group of works from the Mediterranean coast, which has, of course, very different light conditions, much sort of brighter, more luminous. And he talked, you know, he wrote letters um, back to his to his family explaining his, you know, the challenge of, of different light, different conditions um, there. And it sort of, you can tell he kind of was driven by this desire to capture all of these different sensations, just as he did with the haystacks. I think in, with each, uh, he painted places in that same way, wanting to recreate something of his experience at a particular moment, a particular time in that place. And then there's this glorious group of paintings from Giverny. And uh, Giverny was where Monet later in his life um, moved. I think uh, he was sort of associated with that area for over 30 years. And I think it was really only once he had that very successful exhibition in 1891 that he had enough money to establish properly his house and that extraordinary garden, which is now the Museum of Impressionism um, and Garden at Giverny, that is a great place to visit if you ever get the chance. And that fabulous garden, you know, he was a great gardener and he had an army of people helping him to create a Japanese garden with its wonderful bridge. And so there are paintings of different corners of those gardens and of the fields around him. Um, and we've created this sort of oval gallery in partly um, in an, a homage, if you like, to the Orangerie Museum in Paris where they have that extraordinary oval gallery to display the very last works by Monet, the very sort of panoramic water lily series, which mm. he created quite late in his life. And he helped to design that space in Paris. So I think he 
He liked this idea of um, a curved wall being something that almost um, fills up your field of vision and you can almost immerse yourself in the painting. So that's what we wanted to give people that chance to do in this in this room. And, I mean, the opportunity to have 16 paintings by Monet. You know, I mean, Boston has 35 canvases by Monet, which I think is, is almost unparalleled. I think, the, you know, the Musée d'Orsay would have something similar. But it's extraordinary and, um, yeah, a really beautiful experience. Yeah, oh, it absolutely is. Um, hopefully one day when we can go travelling, people can check out the Musée d'Orsay and the Blondrerie because mm. it is really something you have to experience. Um, mm. And one other thing I wanted to raise was also, you know, we've talked about um, the two great women as part of this group. And often I think in art history, the women, well, we all would all know, are forgotten um, at some point in history and then they're remembered again uh, but they can often be seen as separate or outside. And I wonder how you approach this, given that these women were very much um, clearly essential and part of this movement and um, vital to it. How do you as curators and people trying to communicate um, these artists and their various, uh, you know, approaches and styles and uh, individual voices, how do you make sure that the women are integrated and, and heard in the ways that they should be and um you know hopefully will be into the future that's oh, a really good question um i would say in this exhibition you know we i would say it's you know unfortunately we can't do it enough <laughs> we can't integrate enough in the story of impressionism which was partly because we are a little limited by you know this is a single collection exhibition and in fact the work by Berta Morisot um that we've borrowed from Boston is the only painting by her in their collection so um, there are some museums um, that have several works by her and, you know, and can even pull together, a, a, you know, a kind of bit of a suggestion of the, her um, development over her career. However, we couldn't do that in this show. Um, she, we, we kind of, I mean, there are four main female artists who exhibited with the Impressionist groups and though, and two of them uh, probably seen least now in exhibitions. One of them is Eva Gonzalez, who was a, student of um, Edouard Manet, but she died very young, sadly. And the other is uh, Marie Braquemont, who was very prolific, but stylistically is much less associated with Impressionism um, in terms of her style. It's a bit more, um, I wouldn't, how would you describe it, Ted? It's sort of... Uh, graphic, yeah. yeah, it's yeah, more it's illustrative, like really. Printmaking or illustration. Yeah, that's right. And so she's not in, included in this exhibition, but the two women who are, are kind of are very much treated as equals in the groups that they're shown in. Uh, one, the work by Morisot is in the still life room and she is actually the most experimental of the artists in that room. And you can see um, in that painting her tremendous freedom and, and sort of uh, spontaneity of brushwork. Uh, the work by Cassatt is a fascinating painting that shows her very much as a equal to Degas, with whom she was great friends for 40 years. Um, and she was, you know, all despite being Philadelphia born, she was very much a part of the French group. She lived in France for her adult life and um, was a great kind of conduit between America and France in terms of the kind of sale of American, uh, French paintings to American museums. But we can really only gesture towards that. I think, you know, both of them probably deserve a, a um, retrospective <laughs> for our visitors to get a full sense of their careers. Yeah, Absolutely. I know it's, it is a challenge. I'm, I'm delighted, Amy, to say that 
um, thanks to the generosity of the people of uh, Melbourne in particular and of Australia, uh, we've been able to add a painting by Bethel Morisot to the National Gallery of Victoria's collection. Not many people have seen it yet. It was on display in the foyer where we had um, uh, a fundraising campaign. It was only on view for 30 days before we had to close the gallery, but we'll be placing it in our French Impressionist Gallery. <clears throat> it's the first work by Bertha Morisot to enter any public collection in Australia, and it's the first painting by a French woman Impressionist to enter the NGV's collection. It's a beautiful work painted in 1889 called Embroidery, and it shows her... Um, daughter Julie and her cousin Alice um, embroidering um, what, what looks like a, a dress uh, together. It's an absolutely cracker painting. And so we're very proud that mm. we will be permanently representing uh, women at the heart of the Impressionist movement on the walls of the NGV once we reopen. So mm. there's a picture for people to zero in on once we get our doors back open. <laughs> it's another yes. reason to be very excited about when restrictions ease and we can all get in to see some paintings in person and I'm really excited by that thank you for telling me about that uh, Ted and also um, Miranda explaining the the wonderful work of the women impressionists as well um, so we've talked about how these amazing artists um, there is an opportunity despite the restrictions to engage with these artworks with yourselves this Sunday through the National Gallery of Victoria's Facebook page. There's going to be a live curator tour. So um, people can just essentially head on to the National Gallery's website and see that live stream, sorry, the Facebook page and see the live stream. And I've put the link up on Facebook as well. Um, but I'm, I'm gathering it's a, a kind of really great opportunity for people wanting to uh, join you to actually walk through the gallery virtually with you to, um, to kind of go on their own tour. That's right. And we kind of, um, Ted and I, have a little bit of a double act. Uh, we've done a few of these tours just for some of our, um, yeah, you know, sponsors to sort of test out the technology and the system. And it's actually a really lovely way to tell some of those stories looking at the galleries. You get quite an amazing impression of the spaces on this um, Matterport technology that they use because it's got a real sense of three-dimensionality and space. And there will be, um, you know, a chance for questions and answers at the end as well, um, so for a bit more of interaction. But during the actual tour, it's Ted and myself going through the the whole exhibition, and it does take an hour because it's quite an extraordinary <laughs> exhibition. Um, and we do look in detail at some of the paintings as we go through just to, to draw out the stories of these great artists. Mm, I'm so glad that there is this opportunity before the exhibition ends. Um, do you think that uh, I'm gathering the exhibition still ends in October? Yes, that's right. Yes, yep. that's, unfortunately we were unable to extend it. Yep. No, that's okay. Well, I have posted up there the um, link on the Facebook page to your uh, feed where that's going to all happen, and I hope people can uh, partake in that at 4 p.m. this Sunday. It's really exciting, and I'm very, very, very pleased to have been speaking with you in depth about this wonderful exhibition, which is called French Impressionism, and it's uh, essentially a great 
work or ex- group of works from the Museum of Fine Art in Boston. So uh, we are very fortunate, as you heard, to um, be able to see so many of these works that have never been here in Australia. But as you said, Miranda, um, we all feel like we've probably seen them before because there are so many that are iconic. And then there are others who thankfully we now get to see for the first time and um, get to know. So thank you so much uh, to you, both Ted and Miranda, for taking the time to chat with us today. It's a pleasure. Thanks so much, Amy. Yes, it's been great speaking with you. Thank you. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.